Congratulations to the Texas Rangers on their first ever World Series win. In this episode, we're taking a look at LSU's dominance, the Las Vegas Raiders' chaos, and the life of an F2 driver. It's Thursday, November 2nd. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. LSU has become a true powerhouse school in the NIL era. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports writer Doug Greenberg. Welcome, Doug. Hey, Owen. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. So let's start with the most recent news and, and zoom out. LSU just unveiled their new women's basketball locker rooms. I was trying to think of a word for them, and the one I came up with was extra. So yeah, just, just give us the, the story here. Yeah, they're a little flashy. Um, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, this this is kind of what the personality of this team has really been ever since Kim Mulkey took over. I mean, look at Kim Mulkey herself. She wears her outfits are outrageous and she totally owns them. And she's, you know, definitely really animated when she coaches on the court. But you know what? It gets results. Um She's a two-time national champion with two different schools. Um, it shows through. And, you know, this locker room just shows um, how much the the school is really trying to invest in the uh, invest in this program, especially given the success they've had coming off of the national championship. They invested in the program. You know, we can go back to Kim Mulkey again. Uh, Kim Mulkey just became, you know, the highest paid women's basketball coach in history. Uh no small feat considering that Gino Ariema probably makes a pretty, a pretty penny. Um, but you know, this, this is a, a program that's really had a lot of investment in it. Um, and, and it's really starting to show through. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I feel like the locker room thing's notable in that like they've, they've already had so much success. They could, they can just coast for a while and no one would complain or at least like people like us wouldn't say like, wait, what's LSU doing? They're, they're not like, you know, decking out their locker room, but they did deck out their locker room and it makes it that much more desirable as, as a transfer spot. And we, we saw that with, you know, Haley Van Lith coming over. Um, I just feel like they're, they're taking this recent dominance that they've had and it feels like they're turning it into something that could have staying power after, you know, Van Lith graduates after Angel Reese graduates. Like, I feel like we're going to be talking about LSU for a long time. It seems that way. I mean, and, you know, the locker room, I believe, was a, from what I've, the numbers I've seen, is a $1.5 million investment. You know, it's not nothing. Um, you know, especially for a women's basketball program, um, which women's basketball hasn't seen a ton of investment in the past. But, um, you know, as I mentioned, Kim Mulkey got that huge contract. And you're right, it, it brings a lot of, uh, interest among transfer candidates from from the transfer portal. Obviously, they brought in Haley Van Lith, which was the biggest uh, transfer of the of this offseason. And it makes LSU, you know, probably the the favorites to repeat again. Um, but people also forget that Angel Reese was a was a transfer. Um, you know, she came in from Maryland and w- she was a good player at Maryland. She's from she's from the Maryland area originally. Um, and Mulkey found her, brought her in. Um, and they won a national title and, you know, she's Angel Reese has sort of been the building block for this thing that you're building that you, or sorry, this thing that LSU is building that you alluded to. Um, and, and again, I think, I really do think a lot of it emanates from Mulkey and the energy that she brings to this program. Um, but you know, credit to the LSU board of trustees and, and anyone else involved who, who also have, you know, made the effort to invest in this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the other piece of it, I'd say, is NIL. I mean, LSU has, um, you know, has taken NIL to another level, too. We just had their associate athletic director, Taylor Jacobs, um, said that they've their athletes have signed almost 2000 deals NIL deals in the last, you know, two and a bit years uh, since NIL has been a thing. Um, and again, if you're thinking of transferring to NIL or you're a hot recruit, um, the prospect of making potentially millions of dollars as people like Livy Dunn have, and, you know, Angel Reese, I don't know the details of her deal with Reebok, um, but you can make serious money in that program. And I don't know if there's another program, especially on the women's side that can make those claims. No, it's so true. And uh, LSU has really been, especially for, for women's sports has been like, top notch in terms of, of NIL talent. You know, obviously you mentioned Livy Dunn, who is probably the most valuable, uh, one of the most valuable college athletes that there is in terms of NIL. Um, she's just made a killing on Instagram and TikTok. Um, Angel Reese, obviously, who I believe has uh, the highest number of NIL deals of any women's player in the country. Or I, I honestly, I think she's, it's the most of any basketball player, man or woman. I, I think I wrote about that at one point. Um, but actually, the the top three athletes overall, and this was actually something um, our colleague Amanda Kristovich wrote about um, a few months ago, is that uh, the top three spots are are the top three female NIL spots all belong to LSU athletes: Libby Dunn, Angel Reese, and Flaugier Johnson. Um, and Flaugier Johnson, you know, we don't talk about her a lot, but she's she's a great player. She's really really marketable. She raps. Um, you know, they, there's something about this LSU program that really lets these uh, players shine and they do a really good job of of showcasing them and, and letting them be themselves to to make that NIL money. And, you know, uh, there, it's it's definitely not something you can understate. Yeah, absolutely. So LSU, no pressure heading into this this college basketball season. No pressure at all. I, I just I wrote a, uh, a piece going into the Women's March Madness tournament last year about how South Carolina was a dynasty. And, you know, we all saw how that turned <laughs> yeah. out. So, hey, rising parody in the sport. It's good, right? We like. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, we, and we've got the Doug Greenberg curse for, you know, whenever whenever someone gets a little too powerful out there. And Doug Greenberg, thanks for delivering your curse on on this episode. Yeah, my pleasure. Curse them all. The Las Vegas Raiders fired head coach Josh McDaniels and general manager Dave Ziegler. Antonio Pierce and Champ Kelly will step into those roles on an interim basis, meaning that the Raiders now have a black head coach, GM, and with Sandra Douglas Morgan, team president. Since Mark Davis took over as team owner prior to the 2012 season, the Raiders have never had any real stability on or off the field. Pierce becomes the seventh coach in 12 seasons under Davis. In that time, they are 74 and 112. They have played two playoff games and lost both of them. Meanwhile, former Raiders coach John Gruden is just a few days away from a court hearing, in his case against the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell, who he accuses of leaking emails from Gruden that were racist, sexist, and homophobic in nature, which have made Gruden a persona non grata for potential jobs as a coach or TV analyst. The main thing Davis's tenure has going for it is that the team regularly sells out Allegiant Stadium, albeit with a big assist from the fans of opposing teams. That will be especially true come February, when Allegiant hosts Super Bowl 58, a game the Raiders will not be playing in. It's too early to judge the Milwaukee Bucks trade for Damian Lillard, but the team has to be happy with the move so far, and not just because Dame scored 39 points in his Bucks debut. Per Forbes, since the blockbuster trade on October 12th, the Bucks have sold more than 1,500 ticket packages, 
250 full season plans. They've seen a 500% increase in site traffic and gained over 200,000 social media followers. On top of that, the move seems to have convinced Giannis Attentacumpo to stick around. Prior to the Lillard trade, Giannis was making no promises about sticking around after his contract expired. 11 days after acquiring Lillard, the Bucks inked Giannis to a three-year, $186 million extension that will keep him in Milwaukee through at least the 2026 season and includes a player option for the following year. This dynamic duo will have at least three years together to see if they can turn these big investments into a title. Up next, I spoke to F2 driver Juan Manuel Correa. Correa grew up in a racing-obsessed family, but still faced long odds to making it a career. It required leaving Ecuador, his home country, and then battling back from a horrific injury from a crash during a race. That conversation is coming up next. I am joined now by Juan Manuel Correa, driver for F2 team Van Amersfoort Racing. Welcome, JM. Thank you. How are you? Doing great. So um, let's just get a little bit of your backstory. How did you get into racing? I started when I was seven years old. My dad put me in a go-kart. Um, he was a, a motorsports uh, fan. I grew up watching uh, F1 World Rally Championship. And when I was about six years old, my dad started racing rally uh, just as a bit of fun. And he started meeting a lot of people in the motorsports community uh, back in Ecuador, uh, where I was born. And um, he put me in a go-kart because he knew that I loved uh, everything that had wheels and, and engines on it. Um, and it, it sort of went very quickly from there. You know, it, it started as a, as a hobby, but I, I shouted and pouted until he got me into classes. And I started going uh, twice a week after school to, to train. And um, the, before I knew it, I was doing all the major races in Ecuador and even starting to race internationally. So it all went, it went by quite quickly. Yeah, and I think people are, you know, somewhat aware of the racing culture in the U.S. and in Europe. What's it like in Ecuador and South America? It's a big racing culture, a lot of fans, um, mainly focus on F1. Uh, you know, they're, they're in, in South America, we don't really follow IndyCar or, or NASCAR uh, at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that culture was part of the reason why my dad, in, in first place, was a fanatic. Actually... Family from both sides are, are very big into F1, or, and where, you know, uh, back in, in that time as well. So, yeah, I think I think that helped quite a bit. But the only issue in, in Ecuador is it's a small country. Um, there's not a lot of money. And, you know, racing is, is a, an expensive sport where you either need to have a lot of money yourself or there needs to be a lot of support from private and public companies. And Ecuador is not the easiest place to, to do that in. So... I learned um, quite quickly that that it was going to be tough to kind of make it out of Ecuador as a racing driver. Yeah, and so how did you find that path uh, on your way out? Were there any key moments or you know key deals or even sponsorships that helped you make that leap? Yes. Um, so I am very lucky that my dad is American. Actually, he was born in in Boca Raton, Florida. So. I have the double nationality with him and we moved to Miami when I was about 11 years old, when I was still just getting started in, in racing. And I began racing in Florida uh, under an American flag for Team USA. And in 2013, I ended up winning the karting national championship in the USA as, as an American champion. And then because I won that, I got a ticket to go represent the USA in the world championship later that year. And I ended up winning that that race, which was 
a big surprise to all of us. And that's really what got me my, my big break. And I got a contract offered to go over and, and race in Europe uh, representing the USA. So I am very lucky that, that actually my dad was born in America. And, you know, by now, most of my life has been spent also in, in, in Miami. So I feel like that's my, my home. And, and that's <laughs> thanks to that, I had a, an amazing opportunity. And I still do. A lot of my sponsors uh, right now are American companies. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2019, you had a horrendous crash. The, the other driver died. Uh, you almost died. Did you think about quitting or was your goal always to get back on the track? Uh, I did think about it. Uh, and to be honest, initially, I, I kind of wanted to quit. I, I wanted nothing to do with, with racing, but I'm talking uh, for the first few days, uh, quite quickly in my mind. Uh, <laughs> so by the end of the week, and, you're ready. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, uh, you know. When I really sort of had to sit down and think, okay, like what, what if I quit? What am I actually gonna be doing? You know, from now on, what's gonna my life gonna look like? Um, that's when I realized, like, nah, you know, I I, I really want to go back. Th- that makes me happy. I wanted the challenge also of the process of getting back, and I needed that motivation to sort of get through everything. Um, and then from then on, it was sort of tunnel vision. Uh, into racing again and, and becoming competitive. And I'm still sort of in that state of mind uh, up to this day. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and something like that, I can imagine it's in some ways a years long recovery, you know, there's your ability to get back, you know, competing, but then there's the full recovery, you know, could take even longer. Um, how do you feel the FIA handled your situation when you're going through that? Yeah, not, not great. I've, I've spoken about this publicly already. I think, uh, uh, people know how I feel about it, and it, it could have handled been handled much better. Uh, I do recognize that the FIA doesn't have a lot of experience in such cases because, luckily, they aren't that big accidents anymore, um, or uh, definitely not as often as, as there were before. But it could have handled much be it could have been handled much better. Uh, I, I could have used a lot more support than than I had. I was very lucky in my particular case that I have an amazing family, an amazing uh, support group around me, that the team, everyone was really incredible. Uh, but I don't feel that a lot of drivers are that lucky, you know, and, and uh, I think that there should be more uh, more care taken within the sport, within the industry to, to really give drivers that, that support they need and not just physically, but also mentally, you know, it was, it was really hard. If you're not there, if you've never gone through something like that, you can't imagine the challenges that, that, that you go through. Right. Uh, so yeah, it, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. So formula one, of course, has seen surging popularity, enormous popularity. Um, how has that changed life in formula two? It, it's changed it a bit. It's it's grown together with F1. Um, I feel the difference. You know, it's it's starting to become sort of a series that holds its own weight, commercially speaking, which is very interesting. Um, and and it's good because it gives us drivers that need sponsorship to drive more opportunity, because uh, it's it's somewhat easier to to find it. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, uh, obviously you can see the immediate effect in our socials. Like a lot of F2 drivers are now surpassing hundreds of thousands of followers, which before was only F1 drivers were getting those numbers. Um, and, and you just see also the, the effect of it at the track in the races. We race together with F1. 
um, and just the amount of people is, is unbelievable. We were in Silverstone two weeks ago. There was 480,000 people over the weekend. That's that's insane. You know, that, a few years ago, you know, when I was racing GP3 in 2018, that was not the case. It was about half the people. So you can really see the difference. Yeah. And have you seen any growing pains or just, you know, signs that this organization, your league, F1, the FIA itself, are kind of figuring out what it's like to be a league of this size? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's normal. Um, you know, everything is moving quickly. I think they've done an amazing job because they are in the position they are in right now, which is uh, being, you know, outright one of the biggest sports in the world in terms of, of viewership, fan base. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty incredible. I, I I dare to say it's a golden era for Formula One and motorsports in general because I think just the, the the fan base is growing and that is spreading to other series. So it's it's a pretty good time to be a driver. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure they're gonna make mistakes and learn from them and do other things that are gonna be great. Uh, I'm excited to see how this movie uh, driven does. I think does a, a really interesting experiment. Because it might be a, a, a boom uh, and maybe have the same effect as what Drive to Survive did. Um, but yeah, it's all sort of exciting. You know, even for me, I, I really like the business aspect of the sport. I follow it closely and uh, yeah, it's interesting to see what's going on. Yeah. And as someone who, who tracks that business aspect, what's been notable to you? Just, you know, something that you might not have expected going into this whole thing. Well, I'll tell you what's probably the number one thing that people are surprised when when I tell them uh, being an F2 driver people don't believe me that I have to bring money to the team to drive <laughs> people people assume that we get paid a lot of money um, because w- when you think about it there's only 20 drivers in Formula 1 22 drivers in Formula 2 and 30 drivers in, in Formula 3 that's that's not a lot of drivers in to you know be the top 3 categories uh, with F1 Um so you would expect we all get paid a lot of money, but it's not the case. The economics of it are, are quite different to, to other sports. Thus comes my previous point about, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a business in the end of the day. And as a driver, you need to be quite business savvy if, if you want to make your own way in, in this world and find the funding yourself. Um, but it, it teaches you a lot about how the world works. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to imagine if you're an F2 team, Obviously, you want the best drivers you can find, but it must make some difference in who you're picking. You know, for there's there's you know just a couple spots on your team. Um, you know, who can bring in sponsorships? Who can you know has that that business ability? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all it's sort of the same thing that you see in F one. Uh, there's always a, a counter uh, balance between talent uh, and money. And, and that's normal because in a way, money also means performance for a team. You know, more money, they can hire better people, spend more on certain tools, development. Uh, so it's, it's very similar to, to F1. Uh, the, the rule of thumb is the less experience and, and less established you are as a driver, the more money you're going to have to bring. It's, it's that simple. Uh, and, and also there are great, good and not so good teams in F2, just like in F1. Uh, and they have a different price range, also depending who you are. So, you know, we, we also have uh, what we call the F2 silly season, and uh, there's a lot of changes, and that's actually starting quite soon. So uh, 
yeah, you you gotta you you gotta be able to move around uh, quite smartly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in F one, you know, the the highest of the high level, there are a couple seats reserved for people with really rich families, and you know, that's it's clearly. I mean, they have some ability. Obviously, they're not you know just just like me driving around, but it's. Um, you know, it's, there are a couple of cases that are easy to point to where it's like, well, it's clear why you're in that seat and not someone else. And just to finish this off, um, so as an American Ecuadorian, what would it mean for you to reach Formula One? Oh, it would be cool. It would be very cool. You know, um, it would be kind of like a check of the of the list in, in the bucket list I have for, for my life. There are other big ones, uh, but this is the first one I, I, I want to accomplish. Um it would be quite a big honor as well to to be an Ecuadorian up there to also be an American. Not a lot of Americans uh, up there, and and not a lot have been for the last I don't know twenty thirty years. So that would be very special, and um, that would be the first part of it. The next, I'm sure, as soon as I make it, I will think, okay, how do I become a world champion now? <laughs> because I always, I'm always thinking of the next step. But um, yeah, I, I I am working hard for it, and. Uh, Hopefully, it, it'll happen in the next uh, few years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, great stuff. Jam, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, my pleasure. That is it for today. Subscribe to this show. We have some great interviews coming up that you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.